Hey guys, thanks for listening to Kinda Dating, the comedy dating podcast where I, your host, Natasha Chandel, and some cool guests break down the dating world and try to figure out why the fuck do we all have commitment issues? Today's topic is the science of relationships, how it can help you find love. Let's do this. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Kinda Dating. Uh... I have been reading so many of your reviews uh, on our uh, on the podcast app, and I just want to say thank you so 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 much. Um, it really uh, inspires us and motivates us uh, to know that um, either we're talking about things that you like, that that you're relating to, that you are relating to our guests, um, and that you you know you're finding us uh, entertaining. So thank you so much, and please keep those reviews coming. Uh, we are super grateful as always. Uh, today's topic is super, super cool. Um, I want to introduce my guest right away. She is Dr. Marissa T. Cohen, a psychology professor and co-founder of the Self-Awareness and Bonding Lab, which is a relationship science lab. So today we're going to be talking about the science of relationships and how it can help us to either find love and just connect with each other. Hi, Marissa. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me here. Thank you so much for being on. I'm so excited about this because you are um, just a, a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> uh, all the way out in New York where I used to live. Um, so this is a phoner, guys. Uh, and, you know, everybody says like dating in New York is real tough. Um, oh, my gosh. Definitely is. Yeah, right. It's funny because people in L.A. always think it's hard here. And I'm like, oh, you've never been there. Um, let me ask you quickly. Are you single or in a relationship? I am married. Yes. So you really <laughs> are an expert. <laughs> um, I, I'm a survivor of online dating. Yeah, I know. Right. I, I It is like it's like. A, a war field out there. Um, it definitely is. <laughs> uh, can you explain to everybody what is relationship science? All right. Well, relationship science is a wonderful field. It's an interdisciplinary field, which kind of covers areas including psychology, biology, philosophy, sociology. And it's probably only 25, maybe 35 years old tops. But I want to say within the last five years or so, it's really been popular uh, as a couple of stories kind of hit the social media waves. And, you know, people are starting to get really interested in this field. Wow, I didn't realize it was that young. Yeah, yeah. Compared to the rest of the, the subfields in psychology, it's relatively new. And what made you want to get into this specifically? Well, my path to studying relationships is actually quite unconventional. Um, I actually started out in college as a biology major, and I knew that I wanted to do research, but I thought it was going to be somewhere in, in the biology field. And um, I guess somehow my senior year of college, I kind of had this epiphany that I couldn't spend the rest of my life bent over a microscope. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> more power to those who do it. I think it's such an important field and we're constantly finding these amazing breakthroughs in science. But I wanted to do something a little bit more uh, interdisciplinary and I wound up going into social sciences. And um, I pursued a PhD originally in educational psychology, 
So I was studying relationships, but in a different way. Hmm. Uh, relationships of students to their teachers and how they learn and relationships amongst the different components of those people who work in a school. And somehow, several years ago, I think it was in 2012, I took a continuing education course on human bonding, absolutely fell in love with the material, and I developed a course on it where I teach currently, uh, focusing on attachment and attraction, and the students just really love the material. It just really resonated with them, and it kind of took on a life of its own, and that's what started the whole lab. Wow. I mean, I could see why college students like that. Everybody's trying to, I mean, navigate, like, love. And right, we still, right. we still try to navigate love way after college. <laughs> oh, yeah. Some of us never stop. Oh, yeah. That's, I feel like that's me. <laughs> um, but so you, like how, so how, how do you apply relationship science to like everyday life? Like you said, you know, like there's the attraction and love kind of aspect and like how, how is that being translated mm -hmm. into real everyday kind of stuff? So um, that's actually what my lab is focusing on, what my class focuses on, and I wrote a book that also kind of surrounds this topic, looking at ways to apply this science to your everyday life, because I think that you know, academic articles are extremely important and really add to the research base, but unless we know how to effectively distill them and take the most important points out, you know, it's, it's not that helpful. Like, we need to know, does this just apply to a lab setting, or is there something from this that I can actually use as it helps me relate to others? Mm -hmm. You know, either romantic relationships or friendships. And I think that there's a lot of studies in the field that you can take some of the principles from them and and use it to help you you benefit as you relate to others. Yeah, I, and I think that's one of the things like I also liked about what you're doing is even even your lab it's called the self awareness and bonding lab, and you know at the core yeah. of it that's where it starts is with yourself and like becoming aware of, you know, uh, it, it, there's an interesting quote by Rumi. He's like an old school poet. Um, and he says, uh, your task is not to seek love. It is to seek out all the barriers you've built against it. Oh, my and, gosh. I love that. Right. And it's like and it just talks about that, that it starts with yourself and, and that self-awareness. And then that leads to being able to bond with others. I completely agree. And um, it's really interesting because most people think that relationships end because of some sort of catastrophic thing like, mm -hmm. you know, a conflict that just kind of rips people apart or infidelity or something of that nature. And uh, John Gottman, who a lot of people know about, a famous uh, relationship researcher at the University of Seattle in Washington, I went to one of his trainings and in it he had this really interesting idea about how relationships are so much more likely to end by ice rather than fire, which basically means that relationships end because people kind of grow apart over time or there's some sort of breakdown in the communication that they have between one another. And it kind of circles back to this whole idea of self-awareness because if you don't know who you are as an individual, what's important to you, 
you know, what your goals are in life, you're never going to be able to find happiness with another person. It's really just about understanding your wants, your needs, your desires before seeking out another individual to join on with. Yeah, that's so, and and we're going to be talking about that, um, uh, the Gottman study, the Four Horsemen, his whole theory around that um, yeah. after the break. But uh, you're right. I, I, I think that's such a fascinating um, fact. And I definitely feel like my personal life experiences are, are totally in line with that, that it's like, it's usually not uh, this one catastrophic thing. Like you said, it's like the demise that happens after it. You know? Right, right. Um, but let's start on, on, on how people can like get together, and just like how can we use uh, the science around relationships to help people come together first before we talk about it all coming apart. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we can start with the positive yeah. first, and maybe probably circle back to that in the end. So we can we can leave everyone feeling happy about yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. <laughs> um, I guess I'll start with um, probably one of the most viral articles. This is actually the most read Modern Love article that ever circulated. It was uh, from the New York Times Modern Love column. And Mandy Len Katrin wrote it, I believe, in January 2015. And it was a whole to fall in love with anyone do this. Right. And she kind of... she popularized Arthur Aaron, who is an amazing relationship researcher, but she popularized the 36 questions for people that otherwise had not already heard of them. And um, it was interesting because her article went viral right around Valentine's Day. And every year around Valentine's Day, it, it continues to go viral again. It reemerges. And um, a slew of online dating apps wound up surfacing right after that article with, you know, the 36 questions make you fall in love because the whole premise of it was that she used these questions from an Arthur Aaron study. She did it with a university acquaintance of hers and um, she sat down with him. Like they went to a bar, she sat down with him and they asked each other these 36 questions and eventually wound up falling in love. So people, you know, as pop psychology has a way of getting around there and people kind of just extrapol- extrapolating yeah. information that may not be 100% correct. Totally. Um, <laughs> a lot of people were under the impression that if you ask these questions, you will fall in love with someone. Yeah. Cause I, and yeah, some of the <laughs> questions are like, uh, I guess it starts with, you know, do you want to be famous, that kind of stuff. Right, and then it right. progresses to um, what's your most terrible memory. Right. And they have like, what is your most favorite childhood memory? Yeah. And one of the ones that I absolutely love, I don't know why, but this always gets me thinking is um, when you call someone on a telephone, do you ever rehearse what you're going to say before you start speaking? Oh, more? right. Yeah. <laughs> So there really is some science to it, not in the way that the article made it seem or that people, what people took from the article. And I've actually heard Mandy Lynn Katrin speak about this and she herself, she understands the Arthur Aaron study. It's just, you know, people take what they want to take from it. Totally. Um, also, where- I, th- I think it like depends on um, what state you're in when you're, do- you know, I think if you're uh, not in an open place in your life and you're asking those questions of others and like not really giving a a legit response to it or like not then you're not gonna 
you're not going to open up. You're not going to bond with anybody. Is not going to feel any attachment. Oh, um, totally. It's just then you're just going through the motions. Exactly. I mean, in his study, the purpose was to generate temporary feelings of interpersonal closeness. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily going to make you fall in love. But the point is, so just to back up, his original study was done in the late 1990s. And there were a couple of different mini experiments within this one major study. But the most important part was that he basically had two groups of people, one group of people who were asking small talk questions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream yep. or, you know, like how many siblings do you have? And the other one, just as you know, you were mentioning, it asked those more soul searching type of questions that require you to kind of become more intimate. Mm-hmm. So dig deep, really think about your answers. And what he did find was in fact, those who asked these closeness generating questions wound up reportedly feeling closer to one another. Mm. And we've actually replicated this study in our lab, kind of looking at um, the increasing levels of intimacy that people will feel when they go through these closeness generating questions. So if you kind of want to apply this to your everyday life, if you first meet a new person, you know, try to stay off. Like, of course, it's important to say, you know, where did you grow up or what do you do? Or, you know, all those basic introductory type of questions, but try to steer clear of biographical information. Mm. If you really want to increase the closeness with another person, if you really want to find out who they are at the core, you want to start getting into these more intimate questions. Mm And it's so interesting because I feel like, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, literature and stuff around first dates is always like stay away from politics, religion and like things that are, you know, that get too deep. And it's really funny because I always joke that I'm an I'm an INTJ and I it literally says the Achilles of INTJs are relationships because we don't know how to make small talk. And it's so true. Like on any date I've ever been at, like, I don't know how to sit there and like ask like small talk questions. I'll always like get into like, it'll somehow so get into a whole secret. thing about like life and God and the meanings. And, you know, it's just like gets mad deep. Um, but I will say one thing. One of my exes did this to me. Like, so he tried to, uh, he asked me the 36 questions and I had no idea what he was doing. So I had no idea that this was really, this was a thing at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was like, I wonder what these fucking questions, like, where did he come up with this shit? Um, But it was weird. So here, the reason I'm saying this is guys and girls, if you're going to do this, um, don't do it the way he did because he asked me the questions and then got me drunk. So so we were drinking as we were doing this and I have no recollection of anything he said to me. Like I remember in the in the time like, okay, there were a couple of things that like popped out. I had no memory of it afterwards because like I was so drunk by the end of that. So whatever he said, you don't know whatever you said. I mean, maybe he knows, but I have no idea what I said to him and I have no idea what he said to me. So I feel like. You know, if you're going to do this, like, okay, have a nice dinner or whatever, but try not to get like too... frame of mind. Exactly. Yeah. And so the other thing was, I I don't know, though. Do you think that this should be asked on like a very first date? Because I feel like 
first dates. So there was an, uh, an article in Cosmo about a girl who um, who said she did this on a first date and and her thing was that it was a disaster. And I think it was a disaster because based on her article and what she wrote, she she basically was just saying that she didn't fully open up. And, and I think there was a level of like being too vulnerable right away. And sometimes I'm like, I can I can get that. Like most people aren't really equipped on a first date to like open up that much. Um, so does it make sense that, you know, maybe a few dates in once you guys have like established that maybe you want this person around a little bit longer, but now you want to explore like who are they really at a deeper level, then you can like ask these questions. Sometimes, do you even care on a first date? Like, I don't care. (laughs) It depends. It depends. And that's such a good question. You make so many good, interesting points there. So there's so many different ways that I can answer that. The first thing is the way that dating is going now with online dating, it's so prevalent. I think Mm -hmm. it's something like one in five people are online dating that the first date isn't really a first date in the traditional sense. Because if you're thinking about, you know, before online dating was so popular, if you meet a person in a bar, maybe you exchanged a couple of pleasantries, and then your first date that you actually go out together, that's when you start to find out more information. And it's more just like, you know, what do you do? Where did you grow up? That kind of stuff. Mm. But now, especially with online dating, people are kind of getting that all out of the way before they even meet in person. So it's just kind of like when you get to the first date, it's almost like you've been fast forwarded to the third date Yeah, where you kind of have to delve a little bit deeper and you're not really on that surface. So in a way, I do think it's okay. However, um, there are a few questions in there. I think one of them like asks something about if you have a feeling about how you're going to die or about family members' death, something like that that can get like a little bit, you know, um, or even the terrible memory one. Right. You know what I right. mean? Like, like what if somebody comes out be, with like a, right. Something pretty painful yeah. that you don't want to share like that. I would probably reserve not to the very beginning of the relationship because there's something known as like a violation of intimacy Mm. and that if someone gets, you know, too deep, too fast, it puts the other person in a really uncomfortable position. So if I, you know, start talking about a really painful experience with my ex and you're on a date with me, it kind of puts you in the place of, I just shared something Mm -hmm. That was so private, so painful, so emotional. You have to reciprocate that. And you might not be ready for that. So sharing too much too soon. Or maybe they should just do the first, the first third of the questions, you know, like the, like, oh, you're starting to get deep. And then maybe in your second date, (laughs) do the second version of the questions. People coming back for more. Yeah. (laughs) Just so that it doesn't get like... Because you're right. Sometimes it gets too deep, like way too fast. And it that becomes overwhelming for people. But I do think that the one good thing is, like you said, first dates are becoming so like there's so, people having so many more of them now that like some of my friends have told me stories that they don't have anything to talk about with the other person that they are. Like you said, maybe they've already been texting for a while. So by the time they meet, they don't have any thing left to say and so this is like a good easy way of like predetermined questions and you can not think about it and at least have conversation 
So it's not right. like and dead it's, weird it's, silence. Exactly. And it doesn't need to be so formal. Like you don't have to sit down and say, well, I'm going to ask you Arthur Aaron's yeah. questions. Let's go. But um, truth be told, I did this last Monday. I was hosting an event with um, an alumni group from my college. And we wanted to do something because we, we kind of found the idea that at most of the alumni events, people come with their own friends. They hang out with their own friends and they leave with their own friends. Yeah. And we wanted to do something that kind of forced people to get out of their comfort zone talking to others. So what we did was we actually used 10 of these 36 questions to get people to get to know one another at a deeper level. Mm. And it wasn't only for romantic purposes. We, we called it a speed connecting event. So we figured get to know friends you know, potential collaborators in the future, whatever level, but we want to get people talking to new individuals. And we already know all that information. We all went to the same college. We all live in New York City. Mm-hmm. We don't need to talk about that. Let's go deeper and let's go deeper quickly. And people loved the experience. Really? You know, I wonder if that was one that my best friend went to. He told me that he was going to a speed dating thing in New York because I used to live there. And so he was just telling me, he's like, I just wanted to like get out of my shell a little bit because he's a little quieter. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wonder if that was it. So weird. Mm -hmm. I should ask him. (laughs) But yeah, Yeah. that sounds super fun Um, and a good way to like open up right away. Exactly. Um, let's move on to you had you had also talked about uh, something that that was fascinating to me, the thing about uh, the myth around um, opposites attract. Oh my gosh! Yes, that is one of the biggest biggest misconceptions people have about relationships, and that's one misconception that I have to keep fighting against in my classes that I teach too, because people are so adamant and they'll, you know, they'll use all of these stories. Oh, me and my partner were completely opposite or, or my friend and her partner, they're opposite and they're, they're so happy. And it's opposites do not attract It's birds of a feather that flock together. (laughs) And, um, I think that, you know, it's, it's really important that, People are similar when it comes to their core values, their beliefs, and their morals. Because that's the way in which they view the world. This doesn't mean, you know, if I'm a Mets fan and he's a Yankees fan. (laughs) Sorry, I'm in New York. I got to use my New York references (laughs) here. (laughs) You know, it doesn't mean that we can't get along and we can't live a wonderful, happy life together. Because, you know, to be honest, when things are too similar over time, that can eventually dampen arousal. Mm-hmm. So it's good when people bring something new to the mix. You know, uh, let's say you're someone who's very into art and your partner isn't into art and you try to get him to come go to an art museum with you or an art exhibition mm-hmm. and it might not be his thing. That's okay because it's kind of expanding his horizons, yes. showing him something yeah. new. So difference is there, yes. But when it comes to things like if you're a religious person or not, or what your religion is, if you are religious, if you're if it's important for you to go to church every single Sunday and you're with someone who disdains the idea of going to church or religion, it's probably not going to work out. Um, yeah, and it's like, funny because you were saying like the college kids are like, oh my God, opposites attract and we're so happy. I'm like, you guys are still kids. Exactly. <laughs> uh, I would exactly. like to see that in another year or two. Um, 
not to be jaded, but just keep it real. <laughs> um, no, it's interesting because so when I was younger, I kind of thought the same thing. I uh, tended to be with people that I that, that everybody be like, oh, you guys are so different. And there were a couple people for sure. And I think I, I had like a crazy ex-boyfriend and him and I were so different. Um, and I used to think again, it's like, oh, opposites attract. And then once I came out of that relationship, I was like, oh, no, never again. Like now I realize like what you said, you can have things that are different about you, but your values and your core underlying things that really hold and drive relationships in the future cannot be different. Like exactly. your approach to life, your your approach to each other, how you, you know, what you value, like. Like I've talked about it multiple times in the show. Like I can't be with somebody who's like not a family person and or is not okay with me being a family person. You know, um, that said, I'm dating right now, uh, seeing this guy and he is um, a former Marine vet. And we joke about it that like he is, you know, like we always joke about, well, what would be your your dream house? And I, I'm always just like, oh, I want this like really beautiful place with like a, a nice backyard and like a fountain in the back so I could like a nice deck where I could sit and write and, you know, whatever. Sounds nice. Yeah, right. And I, and, and I'm, I just always joke that I'm like the, the butterfly serene, like, you know, <laughs> hippie kind of whatever. And he'll be like, I want a fortress that, you know, is, is blocked in and has like, and I'm just like, we always like laugh about it that he because he's come from that marine life um you know is very like seems hard edged and i'm so you know when you compromise you can have this like amazing house couple of acres with like really really large tall gates around it well i I said i said our our balance can be we get a nice house that's in a gated community so it's still protected (laughs) and nobody can look in um no but it's funny (laughs) but but on the surface we're different for sure but i think a lot of like the way we approach life and what we think about things and is very much alike. And I think that's what kind of keeps us going for now. Um, And I think you made a really important point when you were saying um, about, you know, the importance of family. And it doesn't necessarily mean like, you know, you need two people who come from very large and involved families. But if someone, you know, you have one person who has a very large family, one person who it might just be like your immediate, you know, their parents and maybe grandparents or something. But if both people value the idea of togetherness, spending the, you know, the holidays around a family dinner table, um, the need to have your families involved in your Mm. life and maybe, you know, sharing important moments with them. As long as that aligns, then the people are okay. Because we all come from different backgrounds and experiences. But if what we want aligns, then we're good. Yeah. And and I keep wondering why, like, we think... Like, do you think it's just bad societal programming that we just think opposites attract? You know what it is? I think it kind of... It's like the Disney movies and you know what I mean? Right. Well, the Disney movies, if you think about them, are kind of detrimental to how we view relationships. No, they Um, are. That's why. Yeah. We all uh, think there's going to be a Prince Charming who's going to come around and yeah. This happily ever after. Yeah. which isn't necessarily true, but, you know, even some other Disney movies, like their underlying stories, you know, I was actually talking about with one of my seminar classes, um, 
uh, the idea of uh, Beauty and the Beast mm-hmm. and how she's basically held captive and then, and then falls in love with him, which if you read, there's some very interesting articles about how it kind of represents Stockholm Syndrome. Oh so my it's just like, <laughs> Yeah, so we can't really use Disney right. movies as a model for our relationship. But I feel like that's what, when kids grow up, like that's the kind of shit that we end up watching. And then I think that that brainwashes us into thinking, you know, though I will say one thing, if I'm thinking about it right now, I think the one based on this, the opposites attract part, you got to say that at the end of the day, they always end up with the nice guy. You know what I mean? Like you're not going to go like Jasmine didn't end up with Jafar. She ended up with Aladdin. You know what I mean? Jafar was like the dicky bad guy and he was wielding all kinds of power and he seemed like the alpha. But really, she wanted Aladdin, who had the same values as her and like, you know, believed in like being grounded and like being positive and making change in life. And just to combat that, though, Belle winds up with the beast. Didn't the whole reason why the kingdom was like turned into stone or whatever happened because like the the prince who was a beast was like a terrible person? Yeah, he was horrible. But she only got to, they only got together once he started changing his personality. Because she read the book from his library? Did that really? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not I'm not contesting any of that. I'm just saying that at the end of the day. They ended up with the nice guy where I just feel like a lot of girls right now, you're always like, oh, opposites track. Like, I like the bad boy and like blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, no, you don't want to be with the bad boy and, and you might, won't end up with the bad boy. And it might come back to exactly that where you asked before, you know, why do you think it is that people believe that opposites attract? Because it's like exciting. Yeah. It's different. It's new. It's people, you, you know. And um, you realize it's too much drama. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And there's no longevity to the relationship after that. Yeah, I mean, I personally definitely have come. It's almost funny. Like now I've just been like, man, I just wish I could find somebody just like me. (laughs) Like the male version of me would be perfect. Um and and it's funny because I'm I'm like alpha, so you can't. You would think, oh well, if it was opposite, like I can't be with somebody who isn't. who isn't alpha uh, like I can't be with somebody who you know is is soft or whatever that said I want to be with I prefer guys who are alpha who are grounded and and secure and good people I don't like right. like the narcissist alpha you know what I mean well, there's a difference between I think people kind of hesitate where like oh well if you're both alpha individuals are you always just jockeying for a position mm-hmm. and constantly like fighting over things and but it's, it's different because if your approach to life is like proactive mm-hmm. and you're driven and you're goal oriented, you need that from both people. And in fact, like one of the first studies that we did in our lab was looking at people who are very, very focused on education. Do they then in turn look for partners who are very educated and very driven? Yeah. And I don't mean in terms of like, what's your highest degree? What is the highest degree that you think your partner needs to have? But we kind of measured people's intrinsic motivation when it comes to academics. So how much you care about learning, how driven you are, how focused you are. And there was a strong relationship between those who are really focused and those who are really ambitious and then seeking people who are also very ambitious and driven. So we want people who are similar to ourselves and view the world in a very similar manner. Yeah, no, totally true. When I was younger, two of my two of my boyfriends, one uh, who I was with for two and a half years, uh, did not 
did not finish college. Another, um, the crazy guy I was with, didn't graduate high school. And I remember at the time when I was younger trying to be in, I think also when you're younger, you're very naive and a little innocent. And you think, I don't want to judge the other person. And I don't want to, you know, so you accept everybody as is, and which isn't a problem. But at the same time, once I got out of that relationship, I was like, wait, but I kind of prefer being with people who are at the same, like you said, education level as me and or higher. Um, And and it allowed me to have like certain conversations that I couldn't have before, a certain level of understanding that I couldn't have before with certain people, you know? Right. And that's not to say that the people, that people who don't go to college aren't going to be successful. I mean, there are plenty of people who can be entrepreneurs, who can be, you know, someone skilled in trade. So there could be someone who's very, very intelligent, um, very successful, but if they're not necessarily sharing that same experience, Mm -hmm. it might come down to, you know, let's say, you know, I'm jumping ahead here, but let's say Mm -hmm. the two of you wind up hitting it off, getting married and want to have kids. If one person really views college as something that's very, very important and the other person doesn't, you're going to have a huge disconnect when it comes to raising their children. Yeah. And like just in the way that we relate to others, we usually find that some of our similarities will naturally lead to other similarities too. Mm -hmm. There's this whole idea that we talk about called um, assortative mating, which is basically our tendency to mate non-randomly with other people. And, um, you know, like a good example of this would be, let's say you love to play tennis and because you love to play tennis, you want to go somewhere where you always have access to people who could be your partner um, in playing a match and the ability to, you know, get to a tennis court easily. So because of this, you wind up joining a country club and then you're at this country club. You have partners that you see day in and day out also on the tennis courts. And because of that, maybe you strike up a, a conversation. Um, maybe this leads to some sort of spark. You wind up becoming interested in one another and then kind of just like exploring more you'll find that sure you both share this love of tennis that was obvious because you met this person on the tennis court but beyond that if you both joined um the same country club you're probably both the same socioeconomic status Mm. um you probably also both come from the same geographic location because you might have picked the country club close to your house so that's going to lead to other similarities so it sometimes isn't just about that one similarity that we're, that we're you know, the one that we're focusing yeah, on, exactly. but it's how many other things come along with that. Yeah. You also brought up something, uh, you had mentioned this to me before that I thought was really crazy, was that um, you also end up with people who kind of look like you. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> which, which I've actually argued to people, so... All of my friends who have ended up with their husbands and like the ones that are like lasting and really good relationships all have a tendency to like kind of look alike in their own way. Like it's really bizarre and weird. Like it's like whatever it is, like my, you know, we've had a girl named Renuma on the show, Renuma Michael. They're both like really tall and they were both like lean kind of people, you know, two of my other friends are married. They're both like shorter and stubbier and like just something about their faces even like look alike. And my best friend and her husband have very like similar tall, <laughs> lean, sharp features. I'm like, what the fuck? So, siblings or married? Yeah, I swear to God. <laughs> No idea. Right. 
And that, that's totally true. And not only that, but um, I hate to say it, and this is going to probably get everyone who's listening to go and start pulling out pictures of their parents. Um, <laughs> because you look like your parents, assuming that you are the biological child of your parents. Yeah. Um, not only do you prefer people who look like you, you prefer people who look like if you are straight, you look, you prefer a person who looks like your opposite sex parent. Mm. So, um, <laughs> you, I could you see, really, I mean, I could see that. Right. So you do see like a lot of the similarities, personality traits and even physical appearance, totally. um, in your partner as your opposite sex parent. And there was this really, really crazy, I think this is such an interesting study. It was done in 2010 and my students love this one too by Fraley and Marks, and they kind of had three mini studies where the first part, they basically um, had like a subliminal, like a blip, like a flash of light. And what was really presented during that flash of light, but people didn't realize this, was um, a picture of um, a person's opposite sex parent. And then they showed people a picture of a face, either morphed with the opposite sex parent or morph with just some random person, and they asked people to rate the attractiveness of these faces. And participants rated the face that was morphed with their opposite sex parent as more attractive. Wow. So something about those features stood out to them, which makes sense because you look like your parents. Yeah. And self-serving bias, you want to think that you look good. (laughs) I was just about to say that. I'm like, and we all think that we're amazing. Yeah, exactly. There's something about that person. I just can't quite put my finger on it, but it's attractive. (laughs) And then in the second uh, series of these studies, they did exactly, you know, what we're just kind of mentioning is that they had a person's face either morphed with the participant's face Mm -hmm. or morphed with another random face. And participants picked the person that was morphed with their own face. Again, there's something about this person really, really attractive, and they rated them as more attractive. But the crazy thing, which I think is so interesting from this study, is that in the last part, they gave people a picture of a face. Half of the participants were told, this face was morphed with your face. The other half were told, this face was morphed with someone else's face. Now, the face wasn't morphed with anyone, but half of the people were being lied to saying that it incorporates some of your features. And those who were told that the face was morphed with their face rated the person as less attractive. Interesting. So it's kind of like we like people who look like us when it's a subconscious thing Mm -hmm. because it reminds us of ourselves. But when told that person looks like you know, all of a sudden it becomes a huge turn off. Right. Cause you don't, you don't want to seem like you're yeah. saying to yourself. Yeah. And it's, yeah. That's it interesting. It has like that unintended effect. I mean, there's a really, were you like a Seinfeld fan at all? A little bit. There's like a really, really great episode that Janine Garofalo was on where, um, Jerry basically falls in love with her character because she's exactly like him. They have the same initials, the same mannerisms. And then he like gets so excited and he basically tells Kramer, you know, like, I know what I've been looking for my entire life. It's me. And then they go to the diner. She winds up ordering the meal that he was going to order. And in the beginning, he's like head over heels. And then after a while, he just becomes so disgusted by it because he's like cognizant of how similar she is to him that it then becomes a turn off. Right. That's weird. I mean, yeah, I mean, it kind of makes sense because sometimes I'm like, oh, man, 
I want to be with somebody like me. And then I'm like, <laughs> that's so weird. Like, why would you? Yeah, that's interesting. But, you know, I do say this, and I mean this in like a, a, as much of a positive way. But I used to tell uh, like my girlfriends all the time, I'm like, you know, be careful who you marry because, and, and by, I mean, in all capacities, and now I guess even including the way you look, um, or they look, but be where, be careful of who you marry because if you had a daughter, she's going to marry somebody like her dad. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And it's so true. Um, it's true. Marissa, it's stay with either. us. We, we have a ton to talk about still. Um, but first, uh, so we're going to talk about when we come back about um, some, some, some of the physiological arousals and some science around that and physical attraction. And we're going to quickly touch on the four horsemen. But first, this message. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Kinda Dating. I'm Natasha Chandel here with my guest today, Dr. Marissa Cohen, psychology professor and co-founder of the Self-Awareness and Bonding Lab, a relationship science lab out in New York City. Um, we are talking about the science of relationships. Uh, and she has been you've been dropping tons of awesome facts here. <laughs> um, I'd love to know some about uh physical physiological arousal like just arousal yeah so physiological arousal is a really really important component of relationships and of your experience of love i mean if you think about it we're always relying on our bodies to kind of give us information about what's going on Mm -hmm. so think about this if you know simplest example that i think everyone can relate to you sit down you're about to take some sort of a test and you think you're prepared, but all of a sudden your palms start sweating, your stomach mm-hmm. starts grumbling, and it could totally be whatever you ate for breakfast in the morning, but just because of what your body's doing, you interpret it as, oh no, like I guess I'm nervous, I'm not as prepared as I thought I was, and then all of a sudden your anxiety is going to kick in. So this really has to do with the idea of misattribution of arousal, where you interpret the situation or you look at the cause of how your body is responding in an incorrect way. Mm. And there was this really amazing study that was done in um, the 1970s by uh, the researchers Button and Aaron. And it's one of my favorite studies because it seems so simple, but it's so elegant and basically hits on this really important idea about relationships where they basically had research assistants, female research assistants, on one of two bridges. One of them was this high, off-the-ground, really shaky bridge that was kind of swaying back and forth in the wind, suspended over rocks and waterfalls, you know, something that would get your adrenaline level kind of up there and pumping. The other bridge was this really sturdy, low-to-the-ground bridge, and what would happen is Um, As males would come and cross the bridge, this research assistant would approach them and she would ask them to fill out a survey and something which is called the thematic apperception test, the TAT, and it's a projective test which it basically shows a person a picture and it says, tell me a story about this picture and it's completely ambiguous, like a picture of a room Mm. and um, the researchers were looking for two things how much sexual imagery would be in the story that the men were telling. And then also we would look at, cause the research assistant when she was done would say, here's my number, call me if you need anything. They were looking at how many men would call the research assistant. And what they found was that significantly more men 
would call the woman from the high safety bridge and more men would have sexual imagery in the stories that they were telling. And it's due to misattribution of arousal because basically what would happen is people would get off this bridge, their heart would be racing, they're sweating, their knees are trembling. And if you think about it, these are all those symptoms that you experience when you're completely infatuated and you see your crush. So they came off and they were like, that woman, like there must be something about that woman. That is so So, dumb. No kidding. (laughs) Like, Like what is going on? So I joke with people, but there is probably some truth that, you know, we're always talking about for our first date, we should go out and have drinks or we should go out and have dinner, but it's better to actually do something that gets your blood pumping, gets your physiological arousal level up because other studies have corroborated these findings. They've done studies where they'll take a married couple doing yoga, a married couple doing cardio. The married couple who does cardio report greater relationship satisfaction. Mm. So there's something to this, to increasing your physiological arousal level. So if you're someone who likes, you know, nature, maybe going on a hike, mm-hmm. maybe going to an amusement park or something. And um, I actually wrote an article about this a couple of years ago. This <laughs> is so, oh, I can't, I wish, I wish I didn't have to admit this, but <laughs> I love Bachelor in Paradise. Oh my God. I love, <laughs> I love okay. Bachelor it's in okay. Paradise. It's okay. You and millions and millions of other people. <laughs> right. So I, I don't even watch The Bachelor, but something about Bachelor in Paradise, it just sucks me in every single summer. And like, they always have them going these first dates where they're like on these ATVs riding across the, like the island. And then after they're just like, oh, that was so amazing. I'm completely in love with this guy. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what? It's misattribution of arousal. Right. That's what you got going on there. Well, it's funny because every, so in the last two years, so this year and last year, I ended up dating people around September, like new people. And so by October is Halloween season. And I've, oh, I've been like doing all the like mazes and whatever with people. And it really does <laughs> like get you you know, you, you do feel like more attached or attracted because I guess like you're both like freak, freaking out for your life. Right, <laughs> and no, you're like, and this like person's here to calm me down. I love them. <laughs> Next year, kick it up a notch. I feel like, yeah, I know Halloween just passed, but if you go to like several haunted houses, that's going to be the person you're going to marry. <laughs> right. Well, no, that's what I did. I, well, I went to several <laughs> guys. I'm never getting married. <laughs> um, okay, wait, let's talk about the red study. This is fascinating to me. <laughs> So um, there's mixed there's mixed reviews when it comes to the idea of the red effect, but um, there is some research research out there that shows evidence of a red effect just for women, men rating women. Okay, yeah, so that's what I was going to ask about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's men rating women, not women rating men, yeah. but um, women who are, who are wearing the color red are rated as more attractive. And um, they're thinking that it has to do with like this association. I mean, there's a biological predisposition um, where even like in the animal kingdom, when, you know, females, when it's when they're most receptive and most likely to um, be able, most fertile rather, they will actually display more red on them. So they're thinking that there's some sort of like biological connection here. But just even studies where you take the same person and like digitally manipulate the color that she's wearing, the woman in red is always rated as more attractive. I think it's like a Jessica Rabbit effect. 
<laughs> it's like ingrained in our brains to think that like women and you know um i mean it, it's a it's a very sexy color go to go to any drugstore right now and if you pick up like all of the um nail polishes mm-hmm. if you look at the colors of the names of the colors for like the pink and the red some of them get like extremely like risque like very intense like yeah they get se- like sexual siren red so like a, you know like a <laughs> And I mean, yeah, I, it's been weird this the last few months for whatever reason. It's really not planned. I don't know why. I've just been wearing a lot of red and I've been noticing it on my Instagram. I was like, God damn it. It's like a dress is red, a shirt is red or whatever is red. And you're right. People like people love it. And I'm just like not even trying for that. It was just I'm brown and red looks nice. I'm brown. brown skin. <laughs> um, but it's funny that there is like an actual science around it. So right, if right. girls are going on a date, wear some red. Wear some red, stand on a shaky bridge, you know, <laughs> just kind of up the game here. <laughs> That's so funny. Um, let's so, so we talked about the ways to like, you know, uh, some of the attraction works and the start of a relationship. But I, I want to come back to what you had talked about earlier, which is the four horsemen and um, and how relationships end. Um, do you want to explain that a little bit? Sure. And I actually love speaking about, you know, the demise of relationships, sadly, probably more than relationship formation. Because for whatever reason, I feel like it just resonates more with people. I think we're just always so afraid of getting our heart broken that we just want to know, like, give me everything that I can do to protect myself. Yeah, We're going to have you back on a side note to talk about that in more detail. We'll talk about that after. But this time, yeah, let's let's get into it. So, um, John Gottman, um, I had mentioned him before, amazing, amazing uh, relationship researcher. And with colleagues, he's done a bunch of studies where he can essentially predict divorce with over 93% accuracy. Mm -hmm. And in social sciences, that's absolutely unheard of to have like such a great, uh, you know, ability to predict something in the future like that. And um, he basically does it just by listening to how people fight. And it's not necessarily what we fight about. I mean, there are some common things like finances, children, in-laws, needs of the couple versus needs of the individual. We all have our hot button issues. But again, it's not what we fight about. It's how we fight. Mm -hmm. And he basically, you know, illustrated what's known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse and if these are present when you're fighting, you are much, much more likely to get divorced because there's more negativity in your relationship than there is positivity. And, and what are those four horsemen? They are criticism, defensiveness, contempt, and stonewalling. Right. And basically, you know, criticism is attacking your partner's character. Yeah. So, you know, if you're upset about, like, let's say, like, leaving the dishes in the sink, Instead of just saying, I'm upset because you left the dishes in the sink, it, it becomes you, you left the dishes, right, like you're a slob. Yeah. It becomes you always do this, this, this in life, and it's not exactly. just about the dishes. It's like, <laughs> right. it's like yeah, you're, right, right. you're never a clean person. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And what was uh, the second one? Defensiveness. And that's, you know, pretty much... Uh, we don't take responsibility for our actions. Mm-hmm. So the person who's maybe being yelled at for being a slob for leaving their dishes in the sink, rather than just owning it and saying, yes, I left my dishes in the sink, 
it's, well, what did you expect me to do? I was running late because you took forever getting ready in the bathroom this mm-hmm. morning. So rather than owning up to what it is that you did wrong, you throw it on the other person and you now make the issue about that. Yeah. Contempt, very, very similar to criticism. Um, it's pretty much saying something hurtful, but it involves that added component of like coming from a place of superiority. Mm. And this is where I tell people to be careful because a lot of people who love sarcasm, um, quick wit is great, but sarcasm sometimes can kind of go a little too far over and it can start to get nasty. And that's what happens with content. You know, we start showing disrespect and you're conveying disrespect to your partner. And then stonewalling is the last one. And um, I'm sure you've heard of the whole, you know, fight or flight response. Yep. And we always talk about fight or flight, but we really never talk about the third one, which is blood. And Mm. that's when we're just so overcome by emotions when we're in the middle of a fight that we just can't handle anything else mm-hmm. where anything that's being said to us at this point is just bouncing right off of us and we can't have a productive discussion. Yeah. And a majority of the time it does happen to be the males. Yeah. They're the ones who stonewall. So you can have a woman that's basically yelling, trying to get her point across, repeating herself over and over and over again, but nothing's getting through. And or he's like walking away or closing exactly. the door or like, I don't want to deal with this right now kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, it actually is beneficial if, if both people like get in on it just to say, take a 20 minute break. Yeah. Get that arousal level down, relax. And then the stonewalling should hopefully like be over. Yeah. And then the people can have a much, much more productive and communicative discussion after. Well, it's interesting. So, so we had um, a therapist named uh, Dr. Uh, or Jody Frank on the show mm-hmm. and she did a breakup episode with us and she talked about, it's like a line that always stuck with me. It says your relationship starts after your first big fight. Mm-hmm. And I realize again, it's what you said. It's not the fight. It's how people have handled the fight. And it's, the, so I was, I was living with somebody and we had had a couple fights before we had moved in and I and they were very like productive fights. So, you know, we we discussed things and everything was fine. For whatever reason, once we moved in together, anxiety levels went up, especially on his side. And the fighting became like really bad. And it just turned into like hardcore stonewalling, only mm-hmm. talking when he was wanting to talk Um so it was like if he wanted to initiate the conversation, it was the only time we had to discuss things. And if not, I would be like, and then it got me so angry that it just like snowballed into me then becoming like a critical person and, you know, saying things that like wouldn't normally come out of my mouth. But at that point, I was like so frustrated. But he was overwhelmed, like you said, and didn't right, want to deal right. with things. And I remember like no matter what actually happened in the relationship, that was actually what broke us up. Right, like we right. realized like our personalities were not like we didn't fight the way we needed to be fighting, you know? And you and for most of it from what you just said, you weren't even part of the fight. Because it was kind of like yeah. initiated by the other person and whenever he was ready to talk, then you know, okay, we can discuss it. Yeah. But you weren't even part of it really. And that's problematic because you're not getting your voice heard. I mean, yeah, I remember once blowing up at work because he kept calling me while I was at him in a meeting with my boss and he kept calling over and over because he wanted to talk right there and then. Right. And I like had to like, and thank God my boss was cool. Aisha knows him. And I was like, Hey, 
can I just step out for like two minutes? And he was like, yeah, yeah, cool. I like called him. I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> I was like, I'm in a meeting. He's like, well, I feel like we should talk about this right now. I'm like, this isn't right now. <laughs> right, right. And like he was in that place where he was like ready to talk yeah. and, and get to like the, the, you know, the meat of the situation. You were not in that place at that moment, nor should you have been in that place because you were at your place of work. Yeah. And that's totally, totally inappropriate. Totally. No. But it's funny because now I, I try to I try to analyze the way people fight. Um, I had another ex, I'll call him studio head, and I felt like he... Uh, he, uh, Aisha also knows this story. I felt like he flirted with with one of our mutual friends, and and I was like upset by it. But it, we, I wasn't like angry. I had a conversation with him about it, but it somehow became very defensive, and he tried to turn it around on me. And I was like, wait, what? I what? What did I do? And I was <laughs> like, like, let me pull, let me analyze it. Yeah, I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not getting dragged down because I didn't do shit. And <laughs> and it's funny because now you know, 27 year old that I'm dating. Um, we got in a fight about something sort of similar and, um, and he immediately just accepted it. He's like, I was wrong. I fucked up. It won't happen again. And I was like, Oh, okay. Like, oh. Wow. This is incredibly healthy. Well, then I was like, well, like what should I, <laughs> I mean, should I add something? Like, I feel like I should say something more, but you just, he's like, I, I mean, you'll never experience it again. I was like, Oh, fine thank you (laughs) (laughs) it was such a weird thing because I wasn't used to that right right Um, and it's like you know just even knowing about these four horsemen it's enough to help improve your relationships and I don't even mean romantic relationships friendships anything because mm -hmm. like let's be honest if you go through them, you know which ones you tend to employ. You know, totally. sometimes you just want to win a fight and you just drop that bomb. Like, oh, yeah, you remind me just of your mother or something. Yeah. Like, you know what's going to get under that person's skin. And sometimes you do things that aren't even related to what you're fighting about. You just, at that moment, you want to be the so-called winner of the fight. Yeah. But when the fight is resolved, the words that you use those are going to be held by that other person long after the fight's over. So if you can like identify which ones you employ and just try to like whatever extent possible, it's hard. Trust me. Cause I still to this day, even see which ones I'm throwing out there, Yeah. but like try to rein it in and it'll make all the difference in the world. And like what you just said about the whole, um, owning it, that's like the antidote to defensiveness. If you own when you're wrong, the other person is going to own when they're wrong and yeah. it just it makes it so much better. Totally. 100%. Um, Marissa, this has been fascinating. I feel like we could go on forever and ever and ever. <laughs> um, but, you know, we are a podcast. Um, so thank you so much for being on, but we're not done. We have six questions for you now, okay, um, where you're going to l- just, we're, we're going to get to know you. This is like our 36 questions, okay? Um <laughs> So we ask every guest uh, the exact same six questions. Uh, I won't provide any kind of feedback or whatever around it. I'll just let you answer your questions. Um, so, Marissa, here are your six questions. All right. What is the first thing you notice about a potential partner? His smile. Hmm. What is your one deal breaker? Um, I would say a person who doesn't have any manners. Hmm. That's an interesting one. What turns you on? Quick wit and intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> um, tell us one of your strengths and one of your weaknesses in relationships. All right. So um, for a strength, 
I'm going to say that I'm a good judge of character, of course, uh, like nine times out of 10, because we sometimes make mistakes. I've been there. <laughs> um, and I want to say weakness. It's probably that I tend to wear my heart on my sleeve. And it's kind of like what we were talking about before with online dating. When I was online dating, I was a person that would go into those dates kind of thinking like, this is the one, this is the person. And it would just be such a huge letdown. And I'd be so disappointed if it didn't work out, Yeah, which is kind of a bad approach. (laughs) Hey, listen, I wish I could feel. Um, (laughs) What is love? Um, all right. I'm going to go science on this. Uh, strong emotional desire to bond with another. Ooh. Okay. Okay. Um, besides I love you, what three words would you want your partner to tell you? I trust you. Ah, nice one. <laughs> Got Mason being like, yeah. Um, Marissa, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, how can people find you on social media? Um, if you type in my name to Facebook, Marissa T. Cohen, you can also do that on Twitter, or you can check out my website, which has links to all my different social media feeds, and that is www.marissatcohen.com, and that's Marissa with one S. Awesome. Yeah, definitely follow her. And guys, follow us. We're also on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Kinda Dating. Everyone. Kind of Dating is presented by Meltdown Comics. Come visit us at 7522 Sunset Boulevard here in L.A. Thank you for downloading this episode. If you can, take a few seconds and review us on iTunes. We would be grateful. Um, and download the rest of our shows. Also, send in your dating stories and thoughts to kindadating at gmail.com. Or if you want to reach Marissa, we will help put you in touch. Uh, finally, I know it seems tough out there, but just try. Till next time. The show is produced by myself and Mason Booker, who's also the audio engineer. Our associate producer is Aisha Holden. Opening music composed by Joe Lorenzetti. And our logo and graphics are by Jenna Yannick and K. Daniel Ellis. Motivation with Amazon Music. You're still in bed? Didn't you go running? Oh, I overslept. I'll go tomorrow. I'm getting in the shower. Alexa, set an alarm for 5 a.m. tomorrow to hard rock music. <laughs> The right song exactly when you need it. Amazon Music, the simplest way to listen to the music you love. New customers start your 30-day free trial at AmazonMusic.com. Renews automatically cancel anytime. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts during Clean Car Month for great deals on everything you need to keep your car looking new, like Mother's California Gold Car Wash, now $4.99 for a 64-ounce bottle. Plus, earn double O rewards points. Bring out your vehicle shine with Mother's California Gold Car Wash at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Better parts, better prices every day. Limit supply. See store for details. Oh, oh, oh.